Hello, welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. Quick disclaimer, today's episode is dangerously overburdened with wholesomeness. There's a heartwarming email exchange with the master of the Queen's music. We chat to saxophonist Yolanda Brown about her multiple MOBO awards and life as a CBeebies presenter. We hear some of the finest singing voices in rugby league. And we finally found an excuse to play the original Star Trek theme... Not long to wait here in England until schools reopen, Sam. I bet you're looking forward to taking choir practice in person again. Mm, Yeah, very much. Students in Washington State have already gone back. How has Wenatchee High School been getting around the problem of social distancing in band rehearsals? Is this the photo of the kids in like little tents and they're all trying to play their instruments and the piccolo player is fine and the tuba mm-hmm. player is, is squished? And it's sort of uh, an example of equ- equity, but not equanimity or equality. Is that right? <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you're completely correct. Each student has been allocated a pop-up tent into which they are zipped Accompanied by their instruments and music stands, there's a glorious photo linked in this episode description showing a bespectacled sousaphone player Juan Cruz doing his very best to hold it together mid-rehearsal. Man, you're going to be, as a brass player, producing a lot of condensation, aren't you? (laughs) Swimming in the bottom of your tent. (laughs) Oh, really horrible. On the subject of stopping the spread, which British rapper has vowed to stop spitting in the mouths of fans? What what British rapper is currently spitting in the mouths of fans? <laughs> well, well, for listeners that weren't aware, the Northampton-born rapper Slow Tie gained notoriety after obliging a fan holding a sign that read, Slow Tie, I need you to spit in my mouth. This week he told YouTuber Amelia de Muldenberg, No, I ain't spitting in no more mouths now, which feels like an achievable sacrifice given current circumstances. That is a low bar to set, isn't it, for social distance? (laughs) For your hygiene basics. I feel like a real old codger. That is disgusting. (laughs) It's really gross. You're right. Uh, Moving on. Let's move swiftly on from that. Which Motown legend has announced he's moving to Ghana? Oh, I heard this. This is the great Stevie Wonder. He said it's too racist in the States, didn't he? Mm-hmm. In an interview with Oprah, he cited racial inequality in the States as his main rationale. Mm. Incidentally, this isn't the first time he's threatened to emigrate. In 1994, he said the same thing, but that time cited Ghana's superior sense of community. Uh, I wonder if you have any niche Ghana knowledge, Sam. Um, I think it's home to the largest man-made reservoir in the world. I think it's Lake Volga. Vol- no, Volga. Volta. 
But I think there's a little bit of debate. They're I think good. there's one in Zimbabwe that's bigger by mass, and this one's bigger. Oh, there's something. There's a dispute. That's my Ghana fact. But that's good. Sort of fact. That's impressive. We wish Stevie the very best on his hunt for higher ground. Badum. <laughs> Get it? Very good. Speaking of which, have you been listening to any of Michelle Obama's podcasts? I haven't. I listened to her uh, becoming Michelle Obama as an audiobook, and it took such a long time that I felt I sated from Michelle. But it's, she's wonderful. But just that was enough. Yeah, well, you may be pleased to hear that her husband, the former President Barack Obama, you may have heard of him, yeah. is set to make his own series discussing issues ranging from politics and the state of America to fatherhood, marriage and manhood, with which US power balladeer? Again, I know this. I am across the news at the moment. It's Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The two became close friends during Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, for which... Springsteen gave a number of fundraising concerts. Then he shows a bit of a landmark moment in Spotify's push for podcast domination. You'll remember the Swedish streaming platform signed an exclusive deal with the Obama's production company Higher Ground back in 2019. And presumably this new Barrack-Bruce partnership is their big hope for podcast growth in 2021. I feel like I've got very asymmetrical uh, Spotify knowledge in that I know that they upload is it 60,000 tracks a day onto Spotify which is about one per Whoa. second but I didn't know that they were Swedish so I'm I've got niche but not general facts about That's Spotify really which might be a broader problem really lopsided yeah that is truly terrifying though I mean 60,000 per second yeah. we I mean we should definitely consider putting an album of our jingles <laughs> on Spotify mm. Why else has Bruce Springsteen been in the news? I don't know. Has he been called? I've got no, no idea. He was fined $500 last week after pleading guilty to consuming alcohol in a New Jersey national park where drinking is banned. The 71-year-old rock star admitted drinking two shots of tequila on Sandy Hook Beach, which seems like a pretty innocuous offence to me, but there we go. I'm trying to work a Born to Run gag in and I can't find it. He should have... No. And maybe we could just play Tequila here, because it's a great song. Tequila. Elsewhere in the US, what has a Texas music professor been sleeping with? Oh, I hope it's none of the bad possible answers. Let's hope it's a good one, like a, a maybe a score or a, a, an instrument. Yeah, you're right, yeah. It's Aaron Boyd who is director of chamber music at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas. He's been taking his 330-year-old Groffilla violin to bed with him to protect it from frost during the power shutdowns. Once it's cracked, it's never quite the same, he told the Dallas Morning News. I'm, I wouldn't feel very comfortable sleeping next to something as priceless as that. What if you rolled over? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Oh, well, maybe he's a very static sleeper. Or he's, I, I, I don't know, that doesn't feel like the most elegant of solutions. No. Final question for you, Sam. A rugby league team from which country thanked the staff of a Sydney hotel who looked after them during their two-week quarantine by singing a hymn in three-part harmony from their balconies? Oh, I bet it's one of the Pacific Island uh, teams because every time they have the World Cup, you see sort of mm -hmm. um, Tonga or someone in their changing rooms just singing beautifully together. and It's always amazing. 
Am I right? So Tonga Samoa, somewhere like that? Fijian team, mm. the Kaviti Silktails, sang the hymn Moravi Vei Yizu in the hotel's amphitheater-like courtyard before leaving to take part in the Ron Massey Cup. Incidentally, yeah, as you say, Pacific Islander nations singing pre-match hymns is a really wholesome corner of YouTube for anyone who's interested. Here's a clip of the Kaviti Silk Tales' performance. I believe I speak for everyone listening when I wish them all the best for the tournament. Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, 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 meaningless, purposeful, meaninglessness, I should say. Classical music pod, I should say. Oh, Tim, I've been working on that bird song for you. Really great. I've been waiting on that one a while. <laughs> oh, that's not what I asked you to look at, man. The Blackbirds and Thrushes is a song by Judith Weir. Oh, no. What are we going to do for analysis now? Oh, well, this is Hawkwood. We're not doing bird puns. It's cheap. Cheap, cheap. Two can play at that game, Tim. Oh, this should be illegal. The Blackbirds and Thrushes was written for the NMC Songbook in 2009. The Songbook was a big commission to mark the 20th anniversary of NMC recordings and involved almost 100 composers, each writing a song on the theme of Britain. A good excuse to big up NMC, originally New Music Cassettes, which I think they should bring back as 90s nostalgia is hot right now. Cancel. So hot right now. They've got some great educational resources on their website for GCSE Composition and GCSE Dance, as well as being the place you're going to if you want to find a fresh record of the National Youth Choir's Young Composers Scheme. Or the hot new Martin Suckling disc. Hot Suckling! The 2009 songbook involved texts that ranged from the high literature of 19th century free love advocate William Blake to a chant from Leighton Orient Football Club. A recipe for whiskey made it in, as did an account of road rage at the shopping centre Lakeside. Well, where does the text for Blackbirds and Thrushes come from, and what happens in it? The narrative of the folk song is that we come across a fair maid making great lamentation, worrying that Jimmy will be slain in the wars. An avian chorus of Blackbirds and Thrushes repeat her words back to her. There is a death, and then there is great mourning, again echoed by the birds. Would that he had never left. The words are adapted from an old English folk song, and any folk revival fans might know Shirley Collins' austere version from her 1959 album, Sweet England. Can we trace it back any further than that, though? I've managed to dig a little, though I'm sure there are podcasts out there who will get further into this. In 1903, pioneering folk song hoarder Cecil Sharp published the song and noted that this text was being sung in Somerset at the time. 
there are also accounts that the Irish musician Petri, I think, pronounced like the dish, had heard it in 1840, and there's reference to it in the Samuel Lover ballad, Rory O'More, from the turn of the century. So most of the words probably predate Brahms, mm. but there are some differences in Weir's text from these older versions, aren't there? Yes, and I emailed Judith Weir about this. In her version, the man who goes off toward Jimmy returned with a flag on his coffin. He dies. Whereas in every other version I can find, Jimmy returns to find his fair maid has died in his absence. Mm, intrigue. What did Judith say? Well, to quote the composer, When working with folk ballads, I get excited by tracking down alternative versions of the poem, of which there are usually so many. I'm afraid, though, I didn't keep any records of my research in this case, so I don't know where this variant that I set to music can be found. I can't quite imagine that I personally could have rewritten the end quite so drastically. I'd like to emphasise that she finished that final sentence with several question and exclamation marks, so probably fair to say she really can't imagine she's changed it. But let's return to the significance of her choosing this version later. Emphasis duly noted. Is the blackbirds and thrushes like when Benjamin Britten or Vaughan Williams took an old folk melody and changed the accompaniment? I think it could pass for that to some listeners. The vocal line does feel timeless to me. It's got that modal quality. It's very singable and uses the kind of intervals that you find in many folk songs. But this is a fresh melody composed by Weir and that becomes more and more obvious as the song goes on. Here's a section from the beginning. See what conclusions you draw. This is all well and good, Sam, but have we got any more information on blackbirds and thrushes themselves? The actual birds? Yeah, in some sort of aeriform subsection. An oazone. Welcome to Birdwatch. We can hear the common blackbird, Turdus marula, traditionally a symbol of bad luck. Or, of course, vigilance against bad times. It's clear call often considered a warning of danger. The national bird of Sweden may have links to the etymology of Kosovo, a name derived from the Serbian place named for a field of blackbirds. Whereas the raven has 17 primary wing feathers, including the long-end feather called a pinion, the blackbird and crow only have 16, making the difference between them a matter of a pinion. <laughs> ah, here comes the song thrush. Turdus philomelos. A second turd. The name Philomelos derived from the Greek myth of Philomela, who had her tongue cut out and was transformed into a bird. Gruesome. The thrush appears on the emblem of West Bromwich Albion Football Club, as the team pub used to have one as a pet. It earned them the early nickname the Throstles, a different name for thrushes. These birds are excellent at mimicry. These birds are excellent at mimicry. Which brings us back to the song and the chorus of birds repeating fears over Jimmy's safety. 
When I was looking into this song, I found a really nice video with Judith Weir that we'll link in the description, where she talks about her composing and characteristics she's identified within her work. Mm, it's great, and she seems really friendly. Well, if she's replying to unprompted emails from me, there is a fair chance she is. There's a line in that video where she says that as she's become more mature, she feels the confidence to just state the parts that are important, not being a composer who is always filling the music with as much as they can think of. That's not strictly the approach you've adopted with your analysis so far, Sam. I mean, that bird bit alone is... Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, know, Tim. But let us gain in maturity. Please consider what I believe to be the most important thing about this piece, the rising sense of mania and despair. We shall consider it. And perhaps how the piano accompaniment plays a part in this? Absolutely. In her reply, Judith Weir, CBE, should it be Dame Judith, perhaps soon, said that she aimed to link the styles of the ballad traditional music of verses 1 and 2 with the more leader and art song-like quality of verses 3 and 4 with the piano. I suppose the challenge is not making that a total sea change, avoiding... Mm jarring shift and marrying the two styles so you maintain continuity. I think so. One of the ways that Weir maintains the trajectory from well-balanced narrator to unhinged songster is with the pentatonic scale. Mm, everybody's favourite five-note ditty. Loads of songs, folk, pop, nursery rhymes, use this simple scale, and it's a great way to start improvising. But what's interesting is whereas we're most familiar with pentatonic scales being used melodically, Weir uses them harmonically. This bar from the art songy verse 4 seems full of bracing harmony. It might sound all modern and dissonant to you. But actually it's just these notes. A pentatonic scale! Spaced out across different octaves. Beneath the surface differences, care has been taken to maintain continuity. Yes, and whether we feel that connection on some level, I can't be sure, but it is there, undergirding the bridges between sections. Similarly, the density of notes per bar builds up gradually, it's all linked, like squeezing more and more clowns into the car. Whereas at the beginning, you might have one accompanimental pitch played per bar, or even every other bar. I heard a young By verse 2, the movement is a little swifter, maybe two notes per six-beat bar. Verse 3 takes off in a sort of wonky march, with all six beats of the bar played and the harmony moving sporadically throughout them. When Jimmy returned with a flag on his coffin, he laid his poor body by the final verse, we're fully built up. It's getting very cramped in that clown car, with four chords squeezed into each half bar. Technically, that's four in the space of three. Exactly, the opposite of a triplet. And I find that builds the sense of being overwound up. For me, there's also a sense of the voice beginning to detach from the piano and almost enter freefall in that final verse. That can be pinned on a change in the scale being used, governing our tonality. We were here, but now we're here. Very odd. Yeah. I think in the right hands, it can make the climax of this three-minute song into a moment of real epic drama, 
you can feel as a listener that the performers are spinning out of control. Sam, you said that you'd tell us a little more about why the selection of this altered text is significant. I did trail that. The thing that took me by surprise in my exchange with Miss Weir was that she said when she was composing Blackbirds, she was preoccupied with the casualties in Iraq. The song was written in 2007 to 2008, and Weir described how over a five-year period, the drip-drip of death from that war was insidious. The total number of deaths of British servicemen from Iraq over that period is 179, each one a family bereaved. I would never have made that connection if she hadn't mentioned it. No, neither would I. And I find it interesting that she reached into the past, or at least came across an ancient text that captured that contemporary feeling of a Britain mourning. Found a heritage that rhymes with the present. All right, Seamus Heaney. (laughs) When composers interact with the past, that might be clear to an audience. If you call your orchestral work Choral Symphony No. 9, then it's pretty explicit. You are seeking out comparisons with the past. But sometimes that spur for composition can be hidden from those listening. With Blackbirds, it could be said that the present resonance is what gets snuck past the listeners. We think it's all about the past. Perhaps the true tragedy of this text is that it is applicable across hundreds of years. Mm, Throughout history, there have been many Jimmies mourned. Yeah. But to end on a rising, possibly hopeful phrase, just as the song does, there is something inspiring about how those feelings of grief and sadness that Judith Weir described having in 2008 can be transformed through the creative powers of composers into something startling and beautiful. I was listening to Russell T. Davis on Krishnan Guru Murthy's podcast the other day, saying that he thinks there is a great magma of anger and grief bubbling beneath the surface of society at the moment, and he was confident it will rise to create something wonderful. Perhaps in a few years' time, we will hear more songs like the Blackbirds and Thrushes that have that timeless, transformational quality to aid our catharsis. Maybe we won't even realise that they're about today. They'll come disguised as artefacts of a bygone age. You got to pick a pocket or two. The first movement from Eric Korngold's Violin Concerto, completed in 1945. The main theme from Star Trek, the original series, written by Alexander Courage in 1966. You got to pick a pocket or two. What do you reckon are top tips for when you're doing an interview? What do you aim to do? You know, I um, and I'd actually have done it quite recently again, and especially it's very difficult over Zoom, um, either when you can or can't see the person that you're speaking to. But I also do some uh, co-presenting with uh, Clive Anderson on Loose Ends. Mm. And so I have to sort of research, and, that, and they're not always music guests, you see, so I might not be well-versed in, in their, their world. Um, but what I do find is always say, put a couple of questions in there that you know they wouldn't have been asked before. And sort of being 
on the other side of the mic it's nice to get that obviously you know you're going to get when did you first meet the saxophone and you know what does music mean to you all of those lovely questions mm. and I love them um but every so often I get a question I'm like Ooh, I haven't thought that before and I think that engages um your your subject quite nicely and sort of breaks the ice uh, so that would be my top tip I think all right well I'll I'll try and work some unexpected myself up there haven't I <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I throw some real poses in, do some maths. Yeah. I expect, actually, if you've been homeschooling, you've got a, a wide general knowledge now that's uh, that ready to go. I've but, been partitioning uh, and all sorts, I tell you. Oh, and educating is in your in your blood, isn't it? It's a family business. So, is this been a, a home from home? Um, so, growing up just seeing books I mean it might be different now but books mm. coming home uh, she was a primary school teacher um, and then she went on to become a deputy head then a head and then finally she was an advisor to all of the primary schools in Ealing oh. uh, which is a sort of a, a wonderful touch she did so well and she's so passionate Mm. she can remember every single child she's ever taught and if we were ever in a supermarket someone said mrs brown she will remember their name <laughs> their parents where they live she remembers everything and, I, and she's retired now but she still remembers everyone and um i think i definitely i don't think i ever wanted to necessarily get into teaching today but i do love the idea of sharing and imparting which i don't think i could do it as a, a nine to five job but you know whenever i'm on tour i make sure that i do workshops be it in conservatoires down to um, nurse and primary schools I love that you know having that that moment of just expanding knowledge and challenging mm. um sort of people's learning I, I love that um and then of course yeah with the band jam that comes quite naturally and I think watching her and the way that she engaged with her students it was never just a job for her it was a passion um and you know she was always thinking of new ways to teach and and different ways to I don't know, to communicate with her pupils to make it engaging for them. And I think I've always taken that on board. Yeah, a real creative pursuit in itself, isn't it? Teaching at its best. But I, um, I just, because I was Mrs. Poppleton's son, because my mum's a teacher as well. Right. So were you, have you finally broken free of being Mrs. Brown's daughter? Oh, or does no, it depend where you not are? Not at all. <laughs> I still have people that, you know, message me. And especially now that, you know, that generation, the people she was teaching, they're having children now and watching me on band jam. So it's come full circle. And when you're in that kind of uh, primary school age bracket, the aspiration is not so much to be a saxophone player, but to be a racing car driver. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did that I, work out? I honestly loved um, driving the uh, go-karts. My parents have a place in Menorca. And so um, I think they must have got that... About 30 years they've had the place now, 31 years. So I was about six or seven when we first went there on holiday and I've been every single summer since. And obviously, as my mum was a teacher, she used to get the whole summer holidays off. So we would go to mm. Menorca for six weeks every single summer. I don't think I remember a summer being in England. And it was just beautiful. It's almost like my mum told me stories of her growing up in Jamaica and she could just like roam around the countryside for the day you know, yeah. as a, as a five-year-old, uh, maybe even not even going to school, she would just sort of <laughs> roam and, you know, be with some friends or, or meet up with some people and just be about. But now when she tells me that, I can honestly say that I had a similar thing in the, in the summer. Uh, yeah. So we used to go to the go-karts uh, all the time in Menorca in a, in a town called Suiradela. And I loved it. And I realized that every time we raced, I won. Uh, not intentionally. I just really just, just loved being a one be with the car. That just happened to be yeah, as a natural talent. And um, yeah. And so later on, I thought, wow, I'd love to. I, I loved watching the Formula One. And I always wanted to be in mm. like a single-seater car. And it wasn't until releasing my first album, As You Land Around the Artist, I 
went on to BBC Breakfast uh, to talk about the album. And Ron Dennis was watching uh, the show while he nice. was eating cornflakes in the morning and uh, invited me to play at his birthday party. And then I met lots of different race, uh, teams. And then I started working towards my uh, racing license, uh, which was just a, a dream wow. come true. How many years later? So, uh, yeah, my message is definitely never give up on a dream, you know. So, you, I mean, you really followed through on that. That's fantastic. <laughs> brilliant and, <laughs> um, and I had a very strange revelation actually I, I've got a seven-year-old she just turned seven on Wednesday and happy um I, I, yes happy birthday Jemima and uh, yeah when she uh, was born obviously I took some time off and then I went back onto the track with the instructor and he said oh something's a bit different um you're sort of not hesitating in a in a physical way but I can sense a slight hesitation as you're approaching your bends well, why is that and I had to actually think I think it was because I have responsibilities now <laughs> Right, so before um, so, you were just like, <laughs> just before it's like, like yeah, pedal to the metal, you know. Um, but really, um, yeah, the driving experience did change a little bit uh, once I had children, but I still love it as much, but probably won't be the next Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> okay, and our advice to him is to not have children. Yeah, it don't, might don't not yet, kids. not till he's broken all the records and then he can... Yeah. Just dragging us back to the music, because that is primarily what we're... <laughs> we're, we're yeah, the opportunities for racing go-karts sound like they were there. What were your first opportunities to get involved in music when you were at school? Yeah, so at school, I started playing the piano when I was six. Uh, then I went on to the violin and then the drums. Uh, and, and I actually loved playing the drum kit, learning, and I was reading... Um, music and I actually found my grade one certificate the other day I've just moved house <laughs> and then at age 13 I found the saxophone and if you think of all those mm. other instruments I played on them apart from the violin I had to find a room where there was a piano I had to book a room or yeah. um, be at home and so growing up music was always everywhere my dad has an amazing record collection I think he should have been a radio DJ really <laughs> uh, from every genre my both my parents are from Jamaica so we've got reggae we've got skia we've got opera we've got classical funk Motown soul everything in between uh Latin oh my goodness my yeah. dad loves you know that's the Spanish influence coming in Latin jazz we love as well but that music was always around me and it felt very strange that I had to be in a room a booked time or an allotted time to play yeah. music. It didn't feel quite right. And so at 13, yes, I found the saxophone and I never looked back. It's that early insight into music admin. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, literally that. Oh, yeah. Logistics, great. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I think being able to use my breath to create sound was a new experience for me. Um, but also it just felt so much like my voice and so much more expressive for me and I do say that to parents a lot I know it's difficult when you have a child that wants to learn an instrument um but gosh for my parents when I came to them at 13 said, oh, can I learn the saxophone now they could have easily said we've got a piano there you've got a violin yeah. <laughs> you've got the drums just just focus on them and I wouldn't have been who I am today so um I think it did take a while for me to find my voice so to speak yeah and that's interesting because it's it's I think we associate a lot of our you know, most prestigious performers with a very straight line to where it is that they've ended up now. And that sounds like you started off with a little bit of a wiggle. Absolutely a bit of a wiggle. And I think it was nice because I had that traditional upbringing, especially with the piano, getting to understand the theory. Drums helped me a lot with rhythm. But then when I got to the saxophone, I didn't want to just do lessons and grades anymore. And being a teenager, mm. I had my own mind by then. Yeah. Uh, and so I remember sort of after... Um, I did grade five because I'd already had a musical background. I could do grade five straight away. Um, and I remember the teacher, right, so I guess we do grade six. This is the normal thing we do. Mm. And she said, actually, now you'd need to have grade five, grade five theory 
in order to get grade six. So we won't yeah. be doing as much saxophone playing in our lessons and that <laughs> switched me way off, you know. <laughs> no, we'll be doing saxophone playing. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Um, and so, yeah, then I kind of stopped the grades and I just wanted to play music for myself. Um, I actually had the saxophone over a Christmas holiday. So I got it in December, knowing I'd start the lessons in the January. Mm. And in that Christmas holiday, again, I didn't have to be in a place at a special time to play the instrument I used to even keep the saxophone in my bed <laughs> I just oh. love just having it out just just go and pick it up and um and I just used to play along to the records that I was hearing of my dad was playing music downstairs so I used to play along to um some of my favorite songs or pick out songs by ear and so by the time it was I was starting lessons I'd already made my way through the book I was playing Pink Panther with Gusto and yeah. um you know I just I just wanted to express myself through the instrument and I think that traditional form of learning wasn't quite there to support that um mm. so I kind of ended up going alone after a couple of years and um so yeah technically I do call myself self-taught on a saxophone because it's just been just moments of discovery and, and finding different funny sounds on the instrument yeah and uh, so many of those teaching methods that you know whatever it's whether it's kadai for violin or something are trying to get people to basically do that aren't they sort of discover yes. the instrument for themselves and play around with it and yeah I mean I, I always love the fact that musical instruments have got the word you know you play them you play with yeah. them or play with them like that that's such a, a joyful thing but i want to just fast forward you to your what looks like the next wiggle on your cv as far as i'm <laughs> concerned which uh, what is ssm or dsm and <laughs> i don't know many performers like you who would be able to break this down for me so can you can you explain yes so i went on to university um to study management science or operations management as it's also called mm -hmm. and um <laughs> the ssm is soft systems methodology and desm if i remember is discrete event simulation methodology let's take a, a delivery um yeah. conundrum for example trying to get all of the products to our different chains and different stores what would be the best way you know a simulation package which would be a, a a method we'd use would be able to tell you on the computer this is the way that it should happen and usually companies would say great the computer told us let's do it right. soft systems would be well we could talk to the, the, the drivers why don't we check what the weather's going to be like um what about the products can some of them stay in the van for longer you know and yep. so for me i just loved it's called multi-methodology combining the hard and the soft and uh, i think it's something that i've actually taken into my everyday life actually even in music the soft i think is the improvisation the expression yeah. the hard is the theory and the technical and actually to be your best player you need a bit of both you know to be able to read music yeah. understand the theory understand all your scales and um, understand all of your keys but actually then you need the expression to be able to communicate with the audience you know mm. um so yeah I, that was the the combination that i was studying at university and i wasn't done with it after i'd got my master's i then went on to do a phd in multi-methodology too <laughs> that's crazy but i mean i i think we've all played with musicians or you know performed with musicians who are a bit too much of one of those things right. where like yes. you know, you're the person who wants to sit in the corner and practice your scales over and over again great you have fun over there and you're yeah. the person who wants to talk about clouds that's terrific and actually <laughs> probably we need to do a little bit of both because it's a bit of both performances yeah, in yeah. five minutes uh, yeah right we've got to get to it now that that wiggle feels great to hear you being passionate talking about it as well but that um must have felt like it's going in in one direction oh yeah. and i suppose that 
what's the was there a moment was there an opportunity that turned you back towards thinking you know what or was it always going to be the saxophone well I think you know and this is why I love to do what I do now in terms of going back into schools back into education and speaking to people that are thinking of a vocation in mm. in music or in the industry is that I never really saw the industry I love the music I love the yeah. the product um, but I never saw what it meant to be a musician I didn't ever meet a professional musician per se mm. um, or get to understand what is a manager what is PR what is marketing all of that um, and so I never knew that a career in music was a thing and so I thought I was going to be a management consultant you know go and work for yeah. a consultancy firm or be a lecturer one of the two and uh, so hence going on to do my PhD and uh, the, the the main wiggle did come sort of four years into my PhD I, I um I'd been living a double life, can I put it that way? <laughs> uh, between my, um, I, I did another master's of methods of social research, so I knew how to do my PhD. And between that and starting the PhD, I joined a band during the summer as a humble student, just to you know make some more money. And um, the band fell away after some gigs during the summer and the manager, who's still my manager today, said, I could manage you as a solo artist. I can see there's something that pulls the audience in when you play. And I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Mm. Um, I just love to play the instrument for myself. And um, slowly, um, you know, I was inspired to write songs um, and together we built up a brand. And in 2007, I had my first Yolanda Brown live in concert. Uh, we did it all ourselves. Everything's been independent. Um, book, book the venue, rehearse the band, sell all the tickets out and then we can pay for it was basically <laughs> the method. Yeah. And it, it happened. We sold 600 tickets um, to that show and it just kept growing from there, 900 and up to a thousand. And, you know, the venues just kept getting bigger and bigger. And it's been, uh, well, do the maths but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 13 14 years now um, <laughs> but yeah four years into my PhD I was still teaching undergraduate business Kent doing my PhD speaking at conferences about multi-methodology and also performing um, sneaking I remember, off to go and... yeah, sneaking off <laughs> literally sneaking off to gigs I remember performing for the Russian uh, prime minister um, Medvedev at the time mm. and sending literally sending some of my thesis off to my my supervisor and then going off onto stage and I thought you know it's too much now but at that time the mobos had come the celebrations and sort of accolades were building up and I thought you know I'm gonna do music full-time and so I actually put my PhD on the back burner <laughs> and so I mean that first show I actually think I watched the trailer for maybe it wasn't your first show but an early show on YouTube mm. for your, your earliest YouTube clip and actually you, i totally back your manager uh obviously oh, he's been proven right. but like you can see the openness in your playing like it's something very sort of explaining or welcoming about oh. your playing that's really really nice but that's 2007-ish yeah. right and by 2008 you've won a mobile award mm. you then repeating that in 2009 first person to be nominated twice and win twice congratulations yeah. so that's quite a rapid ascent isn't it, it was, it was a, a bit of a whirlwind yeah oh whirlwind jinx um <laughs> it still is to be honest with you but it was yeah, yeah. um can you remember think, anything from that time I mean oh goodness well I still remember for me you have you know the overarching dream of you mm. know being able to tour different countries work in in different uh ways and work with different people and we were doing all independently there was no record label to support for us there was no record label money uh, to, to push these things and literally it was you know get paid for a gig or get some student loan I can mm. probably safely say that now uh, and then put it into you know booking a venue in central London or um, you know paying the band and things like that um, so behind it all even though now when you look back and you've got that kind of timeline I still remember the 
the, not the struggle, but, you know, the hard work and grit that it took, um, even to the point of, you know, doing a performance at a variety show, for example, and then putting a hood on and going to the front of the venue to give flyers out, say, come to your Land Browns concert. Did you like it? And they're like, aren't you her? And like, no, 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 no. Take no, the flyer. Big time manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I remember the hard work that we put in, but, you know, I believed in it, my manager believed in it, the team did too. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful that it's grown and grown day by day. And so when does that education, when I suppose are you in a position to start bringing in that education strand? I I actually should thank my mum for this and I I haven't thought of it in this way sort of as you've led me through chronologically through my life (laughs) but I do remember very early on my mom saying could you come and do an assembly for my school Mm. and I thought oh how would I do that um and sort of I play by ear so it was going to be based on improvisation and um telling my story and that was one of my first workshops and from then on I just had the buzz for it you know I absolutely loved seeing the young people's faces it was a primary school seeing the children's faces hearing their questions and being able to answer them and inspire them um and you know then they all wrote me a lovely letters afterwards probably an English or literacy assignment but they wrote, wrote me letters afterwards saying I love the sound of the saxophone or you know I loved your story and I think that education element was always there you know I always wanted to give back along the way um anybody that I could speak to encourage um that was also a part of me oh that's great and for anyone who doesn't have someone under the age of seven or so in their lives uh, they might not have come across you as queen of band jam but could you could you tell us what happens in an episode of band jam Sure. So uh, the Yolanda's Band Jam is um, a series that they're labelling it almost like the Jules Holland, uh, Jules Holland for preschoolers. If you yeah, like. I can see that definitely. Um, <laughs> and the stroke top of the pops, I think, because we have sixty to ninety children in the studio in the audience. And um, you've got me on vocals and sax and hosting the the event. We've got the Band Jaminals, which are who are my house band, <laughs> uh, and then we have a special guest come and join us. So that could be a musician playing any instrument. It could be just an artist. Or talking about how they engage with music. We've had the likes of Beverly Knight, the Lightning Seeds, Feeder, um, and as, as well as like a, someone playing the harmonica, the recorders, uh, the serenge, the uh, bangra instrument. And um, it's lovely to be able to interview them, uh, get to understand their link with their instrument or with music and what sort of they love about it. But also we obviously have a good old boogie. We've got, mm. you know, the, the, the songs, reoccurring songs that are part of the band jam. That's how we kick off the episode. Uh, we have some fact jam. So you learn a little bit about the topic that we're speaking about and you see young people engaging in music. That's some of my favorite. The VTs are mm. so great from synchronized swimmers through to um, deaf children. How do they hear music? And, you know, understanding vibration absolutely brilliant wow. uh, and then we have the almighty band jam at the end where the special <laughs> guest joins the band jam and i and we have an almighty jam out uh, to end the show and there's lots of dancing uh, so yeah it's very vibrant very exciting and all on iplayer season one and season two are all on iplayer it just looks brilliant i just think <laughs> it, i mean but if you were f- like six you just wouldn't know that that wasn't totally normal you haven't experienced enough of life to be like oh this is my friday afternoon whatever it is i go and i i watch (laughs) some world-class musicians and then i come home and i have my tea what's the the kid management like because i yeah i've I've worked with kids and there's always a crier there'll be someone trying to destroy the set or put their head in a saxophone or something is that (laughs) do you know what i have uh, to say 
they are so well behaved. I, I mean, I was preparing myself series one for some almighty crying, maybe, you know, some mm. spillages on the floor, things like that. But really, all of the children are so happy to be there. Um, and I do conduct it like a workshop. You know, it's yeah. really, we don't stop and start too much. We might do the songs like once or twice through, but they love dancing mm. <laughs> to it many, many times. Um, but yeah, and it's just really, really interesting to watch them because they come in, uh, we introduce ourselves, they're all happy, they're screaming, ah, you know, yeah. and then... Um, and then when we do this, the songs, they've all danced, but actually they need a break after that. So it's a perfect time to do an interview yeah. and they all sit down and they are so engaged. They're listening. Um, some of them do even put their hand up if they might have a question, <laughs> which is lovely. And we always make sure we take questions and then it's time to dance again. So the actual filming and the way it's structured and the production team are brilliant. You know, <laughs> sometimes in between takes, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm remembering my lines, looking at the camera and I feel someone sort of prod me in my leg or pull on my jacket and say why do you have green eyeshadow on you know yeah. <laughs> but I love all of that they're just so inquisitive and um so free uh, and just love the music so yeah every and actually when they leave they, some children will come up to say, I've had the best day ever they say you know I've loved this and you just think thank you <laughs> you know you're lovely Aww, yeah that's really brilliant. And I mean, I, what I love about the songs, I've been singing Bass Face a lot this week, oh, yes. actually, just to get in the mood. Everyone should go and listen to that. But is that they're not just like fun songs for kids. They are fun songs for kids that kind of secretly wrap some useful bits of music information. Uh, in there. Yes. Or like, I think that's brilliant and really smart but what's what's the songwriting process for that like yeah it is that and they all do start with okay this song is going to be about dynamics or this song's going to be about pitch or yeah. how do we communicate about a musical pause or um you know mm. bass face the the tone of the instrument is low and when you hear something high you know so yeah. that is always the basis for the song and then from there it's all about how do i uh, engage those young people to want to hear it and, and experience it um and so you know something like staccato would be yeah. a term that you'd think you just run away from you know <laughs> let's tell them that in senior school but actually <laughs> we have a song called the staccato robot and children aged three can say to staccato they understand what it means and i i just think you know they are like sponges at that age and yeah. so it's really nice to be able to engage with them in that way and um and show them these different musical techniques yeah no, it's brilliant and is that a, a similar approach to the way that you've put together these new online resources yes yeah because when i was filming uh the band jam you know, for series one, definitely, I was looking down the lens and I could just imagine a, a little preschooler or mm. them with their big brother or sister dancing along to the music. They'd be interested in the interviews. And I was talking to them, my band jammers. Yeah. But after series one, a lot of teachers, especially primary school teachers, would come to me and say, oh, the band jam is fantastic. I've been using it as a resource in my classroom. Yeah. And that I don't know why it never occurred to me that that would be a fantastic idea. <laughs> You know, uh, and so in series two, definitely, I was now thinking about children in the classroom as well, wherever these kids may be. And um, I think then the resource did kind of grow from that. I thought, how can I support the teachers even more if they're using it in the classroom anyway? Um, and so, yeah, we have Join the Jam, which is a, a resource that um, a collaboration between myself, Sony Music, Music Magic Star, Super, and now Twinkle have come on board as well, which I know a lot of parents and teachers will be familiar with Twinkle without an E. Yep. And um, there's five music lessons all based around the national curriculum uh, and also based on songs from Yolanda's band jam uh, all the lessons have been planned uh, and sort of they can be adapted for uh, any form of learning uh, so that that sort of weight has been taken off the teachers which is lovely 
There's the whiteboard presentation as well, uh, which is, is a, we're able to download as they're remotely learning. And those have videos from me introducing the topic. There's, of course, the worksheets and the all-important certificate as well, uh, once those lessons have been completed. Um, and it's really engaging. There's a lot about expression as well, sort of listen to this piece of music. How does it make you feel? And I think that idea of allowing our young people to be creative while they're learning is really important for me mm. as well. And they're helping me out because there will be a concert with me in the Banjaminals and all of these sort of different techniques that we've covered will be uh, bringing that concert uh, to success. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I thank all the Banjaminals for their help or the oh, Banjamas for their help. That's brilliant. And one thing I find very impressive about you is that you've, you know, doing all this excellent performing and saving music education, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but whilst enduring the emotional trauma of supporting Newcastle United Football Club, which <laughs> I also do. Um, you do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh. Um, oh, yeah. You, you know, you know my, the emotional uh, rollercoaster then. <laughs> how, how do you cope with that? How, <laughs> Well, I tell you, I, I did uh, sort of inherit them by law. So my husband was an avid or is an avid Newcastle United supporter. Uh, so obviously, um, once we get married, uh, that was, uh, <laughs> I had to, they were in my wedding vows, to be honest. <laughs> Black and white dress. Uh, <laughs> and actually, we, we always love to go um, to St. James's Park and watch them play. And there is something I have to say, is that the fans and the energy and the electricity, no matter sort of the disappointments and heartbreaks that mm. we go through the energy is always there and that was that what they were our date nights you know we used to go to Newcastle <laughs> uh, we had our favorite hotel and then we'd go to the game and it was it's just so uplifting you know uh, and so yeah it's a great team to, to support but um we do hope that we could win a couple more games for sure <laughs> yeah just so long as they stay on the telly like if, yeah, if we'll it stay on the telly, that threshold be it becomes a bit like Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Um, okay, so I've done a, a little quickfire round called yes. If I Could Turn Back Time, uh, for no particular reason other than uh, I like the song. And <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a mixture of quickfire questions that, uh, you know, about if you could turn back time, but also it, they're questions from when you were on eggheads, if you had turned oh. back time and taken the other option to go second. These are the questions you know, that your opponent. I think took. that every day. Well, there you yeah. go. Let's see. Would you have done better? Oh, no. I can't uh, remember the answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope I can, because I actually have only written down the options. So you might have to correct me. Um, all right. We'll put uh, like a sound effect mm. in there. It'll be really. Yep. Oh, yeah. Nice. So, Yolanda, which of these singers was born first? Elvis, David Bowie or Paul McCartney? I want to say Elvis. Is it a trick question? It's not a trick question. You're absolutely oh, right. It was Elvis. Uh, <laughs> the guy on Egghead said it was 1935, and I haven't checked it, so I'm assuming that it we'll, was, we'll it go was with that. them. They yeah. know everything. Uh, <laughs> they are actually <laughs> very, very good, aren't they? And here's a question that wasn't on Eggheads. If there was one deceased musician you could jam with, who would it be? Bob Marley, mm. without a doubt. Yeah. And, and actually, I felt that I was almost halfway there because I had a concert, um, a series of concerts called Reggae Love Songs. And uh, at Hackney Empire here in London, um, I was able to bring Julian Marley over uh, to do a duet with me on Stir It Up. And I was in denim on denim. He was in denim on denim. And I could swear for a minute mm. I just saw Bob. And I was like, wow, I've, I've, I've arrived. I'm in heaven. You've come as close <laughs> as anyone possibly can now. That's, that's yeah. excellent. All right, quick fire. The Architect 2017 is an album by which artist? Imelda May, Paloma Faith, or Jessie Ware? Oh, I've got no idea. The Architect. Let's just say Jessie Ware. I have no idea. Um, I, I think it's Paloma Faith, 
I really... I'll, I'll double check that one. That's the one that I'm slightly... Eh, you know, um, I have no idea. I'm sure it's wonderful. All of them are great. If you could turn back time and hadn't picked up the saxophone, is there an instrument you would have gone for instead, do you think? Well, I had wanted to play the oboe, but there was no space for the oboe and they gave me a tenor saxophone. Chalk and cheese, I tell you, and, and I never looked back. So I could say the oboe, but I think bass, the bass guitar. Ooh, mm. Yeah, I think bass and reggae go better together than oboe. <laughs> oboe. But I'm not sure <laughs> you've made, made it, it to jam with Bob then, <laughs> would you? <laughs> the song I Got Life is from the musical Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar or Godspell. Oh, yeah. what, what's the options again, please? Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar or Godspell. I love to say Godspell because I don't think it's in any of the other two. I think it's hair. Oh, no. Sorry. But oh, yeah. um, they, they, the egghead came very close to getting that wrong as well. Oof. So don't, don't beat yourself up on that. Is there any question you wish you'd asked a guest when you had the chance? Oh, yes. Well, I do a, a series called In-Flight Live Sessions for British Airways. And mm. I had um, Sean Escoffrey in with me. And uh, he, he used to play Mufasa. Uh, in the oh, Lion wow. King on stage in, in in the West End, and I wish I'd asked him to just sing for me a little in in Mufasa's voice. You know that yeah. deep. I, I did. I asked him to say Mufasa. <laughs> I should have just pushed it a little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> What's Everything the light touched. That's that one. Isn't it? That's oh. what I wanted, really. Yeah, that would have been perfect. I think. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, fair enough. John Deacon was the bass player for which hugely successful rock group? Oh yes. <laughs> queen oh fantastic oh. congratulations <laughs> i was worried that you weren't you, yeah we've turned back time for you and that you weren't i said you too to, didn't i right it was did queen um hard though hard though um, i learned <laughs> come away with more knowledge e, and last question is there any question you wish you hadn't asked a guest mm. no that's good um, no you know, because actually one person I did interview, Frank Skinner, who was a oh. beautiful person to interview. Um, but, you know, you never know. You know a lot about the person and their life. Mm. but You never know how open they're going to be. Yeah. And um, also, you know, when you're when you are interviewing someone, if you've got something juicy, technically, you do want to ask it. But he was so open about his past and about drinking and um, those experiences um, that it made for a very engaging interview. So I do thank him for that. So, no, I don't have any any regrets there but thank you to all of the people i've interviewed for being so forthright yeah i think it yeah means you could come away feeling like you've not held anything back right? yeah yeah um, that's the best interviews yeah. oh well thank you for fulfilling the same criteria that was uh, oh. very kind of you and yeah thanks for coming and sharing the joy of band jam with us hopefully everyone will go away and listen to it and i mean i had a great time watching a couple of episodes and i'm an adult so maybe they <laughs> Maybe even I'm glad. I listeners. do hear that a lot. A lot of people say, I love the band jam and I don't have kids. Yeah. So that is, you know, that's perfect, perfect praise. And yeah, as I say, the, um, the album is out on all streaming platforms. So do uh, download it or stream it wherever you want to. And I did make some uh, music videos when the lockdowns were eased a little bit. Um, so do enjoy them as well. So you can dance along. And I think I forgot to say that the resource is available on Twinkle without a name. Uh, yeah, we can put some, put forward some slash to Yeah, brilliant. That'd be Every day I step out of the path of a man named J.S. Bach. He's always bumping us over, you see. I didn't like it, not one bit. Made me feel like a piece of dirt till a thought occurred to me.
Today you would ask Bach to step aside. Yes! Please move, Mr. Bach. You're in my way. No. Please? No. I always move for you. I wouldn't say that, but go on. Oh, you're being a big meanie. Yeah, I have no opinion. That really hurts my feelings. I mean, I don't, are you telling me or are you asking? I have a little cry now. I can't really address that. It's an absurd notion. <laughs> no. Sam, is there anybody you would like to extend your thanks to before we wrap things up? I've got a whole host of people this week, so I better crack on. Of course, a massive thank you to Yolanda and a big thank you to Harry Wilton for helping set that up. Big thank you to Judith Weir for getting back to me on the emails. and mm, um, Pen pal. Pen, oh, that would be so nice. She seems very friendly. And thank you to Sam from NMC Recordings for letting us use that lovely version by George Mosley and Ian Burnside. Mm. A few birthdays coming up. Villa Lobos was born on the 5th of March, 1887, the same day as Russian pianist and composer Daniel Trifonov. Both goodies. Mm -hmm. Saturday, 6th of March, is the birthday of one of America's greatest living composers. I really mean that, Stephen Mm. Schwartz. Oh, yeah. He'll be turning 73, so crack out your Godspell original Broadway cast recording, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. So what, he wrote Godspell aged 23? Mental. Ugh. <laughs> Sunday the 8th is Maurice Ravel's birthday. Monday the 9th is C.P. Barks. And Tuesday the 10th is both Samuel Barber's and Ornette Coleman's. So a really good run there and plenty to celebrate. Mm-hmm. I also want to flag the recently launched 2021 BBC Young Composer Competition, winners of which will take part in a development programme with a mental composer, as well as working on a project with the BBC Concert Orchestra that culminates in a broadcast concert. It's a fantastic institution. Some of the most exciting names in contemporary British music have come up through it. Mm. Grace Mason, Shiva Fesherecki, Jack Sheen, Mark Simpson, Zia Sloan. The deadline is the 18th of June, so if you know anyone fabulous, give them a kick and send them towards the BBC Proms website where all the details are.